Fantastic. Let me pray for us. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, how wonderful, how marvellous is our Saviour's love for us. Uh, Romans 5 verse 9. While we were still God's enemies, Christ died for us. A remarkable, amazing, incomprehensible almost. And so I pray now as we come to your word where you've promised to speak to us if we have ears to listen that we might hear of that love of Jesus, be reminded again of it, and respond to it with a wholehearted devotion and commitment. I pray for those of us who need this morning to take that first step of commitment towards Jesus. It's, it's not complicated, but it's very profound that there might be words this morning that would assist and help with that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat. And if you have a Bible, I would love for you to have it on your lap ready. We're going to open it up in a moment. If you would like a Bible, then the cells at the back there might bring you a Bible. Just put your hand up in the air and uh, you can uh, get a Bible. If you'd like to turn to a page, uh, tag your finger on a page, and you can turn to Luke chapter 24, which is page 1061. There will be a few moments until we get there, page 1061. I want you to imagine for a moment in your mind uh, that you're standing at the school gate. I don't know if you can remember that or if you've ever done that, but you're standing at the school gate. You've got there 10 minutes early, like all the parents and grandparents and mums and dads do, because there's a chance for a 10-minute chat with some folks that you're becoming genuinely good friends with because of uh, uh, shared uh, children in uh, the same class. And in that conversation, one of them turns to you, they know you go to church, and says, what is the difference between other religions and Christianity? Are, are they all kind of the same? It's a very genuine and open question. It's just part of the conversation. Uh, what, what is actually the fundamental difference between other religions? Aren't they all the same? I wonder if you've had that question. I wonder how you might um, respond to it or have responded to it. Or perhaps you can imagine yourself having dinner. You've invited uh, the family round for dinner. It doesn't happen that often, but you have to include that slightly antagonistic uncle of yours. I mean, he's antagonistic about everything, about the difference between salted peanuts and unsalted peanuts. Everything has to have an opinion on it, um, but particularly when it comes to your Christian faith. And midway through the trifle, and you've spent so long on the trifle, you feel it's wrong that the trifle has been stolen away, he throws in a question that focuses everyone's attention away from the whipped cream, and he says, what about all the suffering in the world? Surely you can't really believe in God with all that is wrong and broken and painful in the world. And you know, actually, he's trying to stir things up. And there's that awkward pregnant pause amongst the family. What do you do with that? Have you been in that situation? How do you respond? Obviously, not all of us are, are Christians, but we know these kind of questions because they're big life questions, aren't we? Or perhaps you're out on the golf course. You just hit a sweet tee off the third hole, you're basking in the glory, expecting it'll be a, your only moment of success off the 18 holes you're going to play. And as you start to walk down the fairway, your friend, your golfing buddy, in that kind of serious but hidden by jest kind of way, turns to you and says, your, your faith, does it, does it really help you? Is it an emotional crutch? But he doesn't mean it negatively. He means it quite positively. He means, does it give you what you, what you kind of need in life to, to get through the difficult stuff? T tell me about what your faith gives you. Have you been in that situation? How, how might you respond? What have you said? What, what, what could you say? Or well, what about the work colleague? 
uh, a constantly interrupted conversation because of phone calls coming in and, and coffee breaks and the like. But over the course of about three days, you managed to have it in little uh, 30-second, two-minute uh, intercepts. And, and she says to you, what is the main thing about Christianity? You're a Christian, you go to church, what, like, what is that main thing? Uh, the phone goes and they're distracted. You know that when he puts down the phone, uh, you've just got a minute to try and answer. What, what would you say? What is the main thing about being a Christian? Or one, one last place, come in your imagination to me. Uh, what about you're out there with your running buddy? You've just clocked 13 miles. You're on the downward slope coming home. You're picking up pace because you know you're just a little, little way off. And your running buddy, who amazingly can still talk, which puts you to shame, in between, in between pants, um, says to you, um, well, what about miracles? Because you talk to them about, actually, you pray. You've you prayed for an uncle or a friend or someone at church who's poorly. And you pray that God might intervene in a way that actually makes them better. And your friend, as you're running down the hill, says to you, what is it about this miracle stuff? And, and prayer, and what happens if you pray and, and nothing happens? How do you respond to that? What might you say to that? See, I think for many of us, if you're anything like me, and I'm just talking from personal experience now, when some of these big life questions come up, both in our own minds as well as if we're asked them by other people, there's one of four ways we respond, none of which is particularly helpful, though they are understandable. One way to respond is we're quite strident. Uh, we come back, especially if it's asked slightly antagonistic, and we come back in a similar tone. We go to war, and our response is quite strident and, and irritant. Another, at the other end, is we're just silent. We just feel we don't have anything to say. We, we don't know what we could possibly say. We just kind of mumble, I, I don't know, or we hope someone drops a bit of trifle on the floor and we're up and we're taken out of conversation. Yeah. Or, or if it's not strident or silent, they're kind of at two ends of a spectrum, aren't they? Some of us just feel our responses are a bit shallow. Do you, do you ever feel that? Some of these life questions are incredibly complex, aren't they? Emotionally and intellectually. Complex, globally complex, and we just feel our answers don't have the depth that really satisfies. I don't just mean on intellectual level, I mean on a making life work kind of level. And then maybe sometimes we get questions like this and we just think our answer is a little bit soft. What, what we mean is we have got something to say and what we've got to say is quite helpful. It has some depth to it and it doesn't cost, come across as an irritant. It, it's said quite well, but as soon as there's any pushback, we just, we just surrender, and we're just soft with it. Now, we're embarking on a series this morning, the next six weeks or so, kind of entitled Glad You Asked. The, the point of the series, the goal of the series, which Chrissy and I will share the teaching on, is actually that when we get some of these questions, these big, real questions of life, questions that might be generated in our own hearts, and our own minds, or come to us from a work colleague or a family member, or wherever it might be, instead of being silent or, or strident or, or soft and, and backing off or, or, or shallow with no real depth to it, instead of those responses, we can turn around to someone and say, do you know, I'm really glad you asked that. I'm really glad you asked that. In fact, I've learned over the years, more recently really, that that actually is a great response to begin any conversation that someone initiates about these big questions of life. Is just begin, whatever the question is, by saying, I'm really glad you asked that. Because actually, we want to share life with one another, don't we? We want to understand where one another is, and we want to delve into each other's complexities. We want to have conversations with folk, don't we? I'm glad you asked. 
So what we did about six weeks ago, some of you will remember this, is we invited people over a couple of Sundays and over social media and that virtual world, I don't really understand, but I didn't do that bit. It went out and things came back in. Um, we asked for questions. We got 61, 61 questions. So we said to folk, what, what would you like Chris and I to try and, and pull a answer from the Bible. Not the whole answer, not everything that can be said, but the beginnings of something so we can go to folk. I'm glad you asked that and respond. We've got 61 distinct questions came back. Out of those, we've taken five, where they clustered, a number of questions clustered together. So over the next few weeks, we're going to look at what is the main message of Christianity. I'm going to do that in a moment this morning. What is the main message of Christianity? We're going to look at the reality of other religions and actually why are there such a plethora of different religious beliefs in the world and where does Jesus sit within that. The week after that, March 12th, we're going to look at the big question of suffering and why is there suffering in the world. That was a hugely asked question by the adults and Roberta said to the young people, our teenagers, uh, she said that Chrissy or I would teach on anything they wanted us to teach on. They got a, a free pass, and they also said, we want, we want to hear about this question of suffering in the world, and what does that mean about God, where is God within the context of suffering that happens. Then on March 19th, we're going to take a commercial break. That's Chrissy's last Sunday with us, and I've actually just said to her, on that Sunday, I want you to preach whatever God has put on her heart. After eight weeks with us, I've just said to Chrissy, preach whatever you feel God has said we need to hear from, from her. So that would be a good Sunday to come to church to hear Christian preach on the 19th. Then on the 26th, we'll get back into the series and we're going to look at this question of is faith and faith in Jesus just an emotional crutch? Or is there more to it than that? And then lastly, the first week of April, we're going to look at the question of miracles, the supernatural and prayer and how those meet together. How does that sound for six weeks? Yeah? You'll be praying for me? Good. All right. So what we're going to do today is this question of what is the main message of Christianity? In fact, uh, six different people asked this question in different forms. These are the six exact wordings that the question came in as. What is the main message of the Bible? What is the main teaching of the Bible? I've just started reading the Bible and it's hard to work out its plot. <laughs> How do you summarise the Bible in two minutes? I don't know if that's a dig at length of sermons, I don't know. <laughs> what would you recommend to someone who's not yet a Christian is the best part of the Bible to start reading? Now, I wouldn't recommend what I did. I started reading the Bible at 21, having never picked it up before. And I read it like any other book, which means you start at the beginning, don't you? You work your way through. I got to a book called Leviticus. Got just through that, then got to a book called Numbers, which is as interesting as it sounds, and really ground to a halt. So we'll come back to that in a moment. Where would you start in the Bible? And then lastly, what is the main message of Christianity? Now, I think this is a great question. I think it's a great question because actually, sometimes the Bible presents itself as incredibly diverse and really hard to pin down what it's actually going to say. It's made up of 66 different, well, we often call them books, don't we, making out the Bible is a library. 66 different units. It's written in, in three major different languages, so actually parts of it are written in three others. So it's in six different kind of languages. It's written over a 3,000-year period, minimum 3,000-year period, potentially up to an 8,000-year period. 
depending on how you count. Um, it has dozens and dozens of different authors, loads of different characters and people and family uh, that are involved, and it's written in a multiple different set of genres and styles. Some of it is history, some of it is narrative, some of it is poetic and, and songwriting, some of it is letter writing, some of it is prophetic and predictive, it, all kinds of different genres in there. But remarkably, it does have one massive, unifying, overriding, single message. If you've got a Bible there, turn with me to Luke chapter 24. So this is page 1061. Luke chapter 24, page 1061. And look what Jesus has to say uh, from sentence 25 to 27. So halfway down the right-hand column of page 1061. <coughs> Jesus has died, and Jesus has come back to life, and then Jesus has taken a stroll with a couple of disciples who haven't worked out who he is, and then he starts to talk to them. This is what Jesus says, sentence 25. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, when he says Moses and the prophets, do you see that there? That's Jesus's code language for the Old Testament, the older part of the Bible. Moses was the man who wrote the first five books of the Bible. And then the prophets is the collective name of the authors that wrote the rest of the Old Testament. So when he says here, Moses and all the prophets, it's his way of saying everything that was written prior to me. All of the uh, 39 different documents that make up the Old Testament. Now, did you notice the three times he uses the word all? Verse 25, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Not just part of it, not just sections of it, but all that those collection of writers wrote, he's referring to. Uh, sentence um, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, all of them, no one's left out, Moses, everything they all wrote, he's encapsulating it all. And then the end there of sentence 27, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures. So he's referring to the entire Bible, isn't he? And he's saying the entire Bible has one message. All of it has one message. What is it? Look at the last couple of words that Jesus says. All the scriptures concerning himself. Concerning himself. The entire Bible is about Jesus. The entire Bible is about Jesus. From the very beginning, a book called Genesis, which means origins or initiations or beginnings, Genesis. From the very beginning in Genesis, right the way through to the very end, Revelation, which means the unveiling or the revealing of how things are going to be, and everything in between. All that is written there it is all about Jesus. But now look a little bit more closely. It's all about Jesus' death and resurrection. Look at sentence 26. Did not the Messiah, that's a word to describe Jesus, have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Again, that's Jesus' chosen language, his preferred language, the word suffer for his death on the cross, the word glory for his resurrection back to life. Everything in the Bible is about Jesus' death and his resurrection. That is the plot of the Bible. That is the story of the Bible. One way to understand it, if you're not familiar with the Bible, and, and in some sense, why should you be? However long you've been a Christian, we're all on the journey of learning it, 
is the Old Testament, the old part of the Bible, which is a bit before Jesus, is made up of 39 different documents. The Old Testament is promises made by God. Promises made by God. The Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the, the histories of Jesus' life, the Gospels, they are the promises kept by Jesus. And then the rest of what we call the New Testament, the mostly letters written by church leaders, is the promises explained by the apostles. The Old Testament promises made, the Gospels promises kept, the New Testament promises explained. Do you see that? All about Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament is God saying what he is going to do. The Gospels is Jesus showing us God doing that. And the rest of the New Testament is explaining what that means for us and how we live our lives in reflection of that. In that sense, when we read the Bible, or when a friend who's, who perhaps doesn't go to church asks us about the main message of the Bible, we can very clearly say, well, it's all about Jesus, his death and resurrection. But not in a Where's Wally kind of way. For some reason, our boys are massively into Where's Wally. Um, you'll see them at the front at the beginning of church. They need a bit of distraction. They've, we've got about three or four. We don't have three. If we had three or four boys, that's just an argument, isn't it? We have four of these. Uh, where's Wally's books? But the Bible is not like Where's Wally. What I mean by that is Wally is on every page, isn't he? You know who Wally is. He's this weird caricature, um, striking pyjama guy. He's somewhere there. Go on, Kevin. You've got about 20 minutes left. There you go. Right? And sometimes we think, oh, Wendy's got it. No, he hasn't. Simon and Ruth, stop getting distracted. You've got four. Anyone else want one? No. But sometimes we read the Bible and we might have it in our head, yes, yes, I need to find Jesus in the Bible. And we open up and it's like a where's wallet. We scan and scan and scan and scan and we go, oh, there he is, when we spot him just hidden in the corner somewhere. But you see, Wally in his books, when we find Wally in his books, what we realise is he's quite hidden and he's a tiny part of the picture. That's not what Jesus is in the Bible. Not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament, not in the Gospels. He's not like where's Wally, slightly hidden and difficult to find and not even a main character once you've found him, not at all. Instead, Jesus is a little bit like, in the Bible, Jesus is a little bit like a toddler playing hide-and-seek. I've used this illustration many times before, so some of you have heard it, but I think it's really useful. I've borrowed it from someone else, you know. But when you play hide-and-seek with a toddler, you cover your eyes, don't you, and you say, uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, ready or not, here I come. And before you get to here I come, they leap out and go, here I am, here I am, daddy, find me. Or if they're anything like some of our boys, what they used to do, you'd say, uh, go and hide then, and you cover your eyes and go, one, two, three, four, and they'd stand in the middle of the kitchen and just cover their eyes as well. And because they couldn't see you, they figured you couldn't see them. But Jesus is like that in the Bible, in the sense that Jesus is leaping out and saying, here I am. Here I am, find me. I want to be found. A toddler wants to be found, don't they, when you play hide and seek? Jesus wants to be found. He's made himself obvious. So friends, when you read the older part of the Bible, the Old Testament, which is full of so much value and worth for us, constantly saying, what does this teach me about Jesus? Where is Jesus here? Let me give you some examples. Actually, we could, we could look at anything. We could go into the older part of the Bible, we could do promises or places or predictions, we could do events or cities or families or nations, we could, we could do it all. The Bible has one hero, one purpose, one focus, it's Jesus. Let me just pick a couple of people from the Old Testament. Now, if you are new to the Bible, 
And these people I'm going to refer to, you just don't have enough of their backstory for it quite to make sense. And I, I just apologise. You can ask me afterwards and say, well, who was that? Or tell me a bit more about that. I, I realise I'm making an assumption about a base level of knowledge of the Bible, which is unfair of me. But let me just take a couple of people out of the Bible and encourage you to see how actually they were always about Jesus. God was always using them to make a promise about Jesus. Let's start with a guy called Isaac. I've deliberately chosen him because he's way back in that first book of the Bible, Genesis. Now, Isaac's name literally means the son of joy. He's also the first beloved son of the Bible. And God, at Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, describes Jesus as the perfect Isaac, the first perfect beloved son. Now, Isaac and his father Abraham, so Abraham is a loving father, and Isaac is an obedient son. They walk up a mountain, this is in Genesis 22, this is one of the stories you could look. They walk up a mountain with Isaac having to carry the wood on which Isaac, the obedient son, will be sacrificed. And through Isaac being sacrificed by a loving father, the multitudes of the nations will be blessed. They get to the top of the mountain. Isaac and Abraham both know what's going on. Incredibly traumatic. Isaac, obedient to his loving father, climbs upon and prepares to be sacrificed. A loving father, willing to sacrifice an obedient son so the nations might be blessed. Now, in that particular story, God himself intervenes, and just as Abraham, with tears in his eyes, is about to sacrifice his own son, God draws his attention to a trapped ram, a lamb, caught in the, the bracken, and that the lamb is substituted for, for Isaac. Now, do you see how both those events were always designed to point us towards Jesus' death and resurrection? An obedient son who carries his own cross up a mountain willing to die at the hands of a loving father so the nations might be blessed, that's Jesus, isn't it? And then God provides a lamb as a substitute in that person's place. That's Jesus. All about Jesus' death and resurrection. It always was. God is making a promise in Genesis 22, only the 22nd page of the Bible, that that is what Jesus is going to do. Let me take another one from Exodus, only the second book of the Bible, thousands of years before Jesus. God always had the plan of Jesus. The Old Testament is him making the promise, so we are not surprised when Jesus came. What about Moses? I love Moses. Just realised that I'm not going through our entire children. I've just realised. <laughs> Don't worry. I could. That would be a good thing to do, wouldn't it? We could do that. I might still do that. We'll see. Let's do Moses. Let's see how time goes. Let's do Moses. Now, names really matter in the Bible. It's well worth Googling a Bible character's name and finding out what their name means. Names really matter. Moses' name in Hebrew, he was a Hebrew child. Moses' name in Hebrew means saviour or rescuer. He was adopted into an Egyptian family. Moses in Egyptian means the son. So Moses literally means the son who saves. The son who saves. Moses was fully Hebrew, biologically. Fully Egyptian by adoption. He is the son who saves, that is truly and fully two separate identities. Are you starting to see Jesus already? The son who saves, who is fully truly God, fully truly human. Moses. The son who saves, fully truly Hebrew, fully, fully truly Egyptian. Moses has to go and rescue people from slavery, lead them through a wilderness, 
until they get to the promised land. But for them to get into the promised land, Moses chooses to die so the people can enter the promised land. Do you see? The whole story of Moses is a promise through that man of what God will do ultimately in Jesus. Jesus who rescues us not from physical slavery, but from spiritual slavery, who is with us by his spirit through the wilderness of this life, and whose death ultimately allows us into the promised land of eternity. He's not where's Wally, is he? He's leaping out through Moses and saying, here I am, here I am. Should we do my boys? Should we do the other two of my boys instead? Okay, this is now off the top of my head, so this is a bit more of a, a challenge, isn't it? So what about Jonas? Jonas is a derivative of Jonah in the Bible. Jonah is one of the prophets. There's a short little book of four chapters about Jonah. Jonah, the name, or Jonas, means both dove in its feminine form and destroyer in its masculine form. So here we have Jonah, who is both the peace of God and the justice of God, the dove and the destroyer in one man. Jonah is called by God. Now, he's disobedient because he's only an image of Jesus, but he's called by God to bring the great news of Jesus's, of God's forgiveness to a people who refuse to hear it. But for Jonah to get to those people and for those people to hear and receive that message, Jonah literally dies, drowns in an ocean, is gobbled up by a big fish, and for three days is in the belly of a fish. Do you know what the Hebrew word for belly is? Grave. Same word. Same word. For three days, Jonah is in a grave before he comes back to life, spewed up by the fish, and at that moment, having died and been resurrected, can bring the message of hope to people who haven't heard it. Jonah is Jesus, isn't he? In fact, with Jonah, I can't remember where it is, because obviously I didn't plan to do this, but Jesus himself, someone can Google it for me, and by the time I finish, you'll have the answer, you can shout it out, but Jesus himself describes himself as the perfect Jonah. That he is what Jonah modelled, brought to fruition. Jonah promised it, Jesus kept it. Last son, Gideon. Gideon. The name Gideon means mighty warrior. And if you've met our Gideon, he's, he's a bit of a mighty warrior. Or a concussed yeti child, depending on what you <laughs> anyway, right. Gideon means mighty, mighty warrior. Mighty warrior. And uh, Gideon is used by God when it seems like all hope is lost. In fact, God, in Gideon's life, continually orchestrates events so Gideon gets as good as dead time and time again. The nation is tiny that Gideon is part of. Then Gideon uh, takes an army that's big, tens of thousands of people, and God says, no, let's make it 300 people against this massive... And Gideon says at that moment, as he looks out on only 300 troops, that he has to face tens of thousands of others. And, and Gideon says, Lord, I'm go as good as dead. I'm dead. And then they're told to wait for what adds up to three days. And after three days, God himself comes as an angel and leads the army in, and they are victorious. Do you see the modelling of Jesus there? Do you see it? So let's just land now back on those questions. What is the main message of the Bible? What is the, the main teaching of Christianity? It's about Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. That's it. That's it. If you've got that, all the rest is secondary. 
all the rest is filler. It's about Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. That's what it's about. A friend asks you, what, what is it you really believe? You say, I'm really glad you asked that. I believe in Jesus, Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. They say, yeah, but what does that mean? Okay, then you carry on, yeah? It's not, it's about going to church. Not about reading my Bible. It's not about saying my prayers. It's not about being a good person. It's not about giving money. Or it's not, as one person once said to me, about giving blood. It's about Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. What is the main plot of the Bible? Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. Every story asks, what does this teach me about Jesus? What does this teach me about Jesus? Every story, every truth, everything you read, what does this teach me about Jesus? What I recommend to someone is the first thing they read in the Bible, Mark's account of Jesus' life. Start with an account of Jesus' life. Start there and work out from there. Mark's account of Jesus' life. What should a friend ask you, what should I read in the Bible? Say Mark's account of Jesus' life and then give them one. We've got lots you can borrow, take away to give away. How do I summarise the gospel in two minutes? I need two seconds. Jesus, his death and his resurrection. What have I got here? I've asked a all the questions. So what we're going to do now is we're going to share communion together, uh, which is the symbolic act of remembering Jesus' death and resurrection, isn't it? As a way to drive home what is the main truth of Christianity. I'm going to pray for us, shall I?